Father, we do not have a complete grasp of your holiness. We do not have a complete grasp of our own sinfulness. We need to be awakened to both this day. We need the scales to fall off our eyes. We need our hearts to burn within us. We need to taste of the living water. We need that bread that satisfies. We approach this text with eager anticipation. We need it more than we need lunch, more than we need good health, more than we need money, more than we need a break. Through this ancient text, instruct your modern people. We know that this is your word. It isn't just meant so that we can criticize a group of people that lived 3,000 years ago and feel smugly self-righteous in comparison to them. We know that this word was written for us and for our benefit. As we read your word, let it read us. Please help my voice and the hearer's ear not to distort your word. May the preaching be clear and concise, powerful and prevailing. Help it to wound us and mend us, to cut us, then clean us. Holy Spirit, we believe in you. We know that you can make things stick. We know that if we are fed from the scriptures, it's because you are doing it. Take the divine spoon and give us what we need from this passage to be complete in Christ. Jesus, my desire is to lift you up, that you would be seen as irresistible, that the beauty of Christ would radiate in this auditorium. Father, we are not just willing to live for you, but to die for you. No price is too great when we have received mercy. Please do the supernatural work of building your church with your word. Help me to preach like a dying man to dying men and women. To emphasize what a dying man would emphasize. And to give dying people what dying people need before they meet you. Father, help me to prepare my people to die. To die well. To die with hope. To die in Christ. As the parable of the sower and the seed teaches us, it's my job to preach. It's your job to reveal. It's my job to scatter the seed. It's your job to make it grow. So today, help me to sow well behind this pulpit. And tonight, sleep well in my bed. Sow the seed and go to sleep. That guy in your parable just spread the seed prayed for rain, and went to bed. The power is in the seed. The word does the work. May I say with Luther, I did nothing. The word did it all. Teach this to your church and your preacher, for we both need it. This is our corporate plea. Amen. You learn a lot when you go through a building project. We as a church went through a building project to build this building. Before I got here, they went through a building project to build that building. My wife and I just finished building a house. 
you learn a lot going through a building project. I mainly learned it wasn't worth it. <laughs> you know, it was worth it. It costs, though. It was physical, <laughs> mental, spiritual. A lot of spiritual battles in building a physical structure. Same, same when we come to the text. It took us two years to build this building. It took Sarah and I a year to build our house. I thought both of those took too long until I opened 1 Kings 5 and 6 and saw that it took Solomon seven years to build a house. This entire chapter is about building a house. God's house. I give you from this text, house building. Solomon received these house plans from his father David. David gave it to Solomon on his deathbed. We know that from 1 Chronicles 28. These house plans came from God to David, to Solomon. Solomon is holding the blueprints, the architectural designs. Solomon must take these plans and make them a reality. As I prepared to preach this text, I was on the struggle bus. I thought, how do you preach on house building? How do you apply house building? This passage is full of painstaking and even pain-inflicting details. It's certainly going to require some effort on your part to stay at it and dig for gospel gold. As we watch men work in the text at building a house, we will need to work at studying to see what God is revealing to us through their work. We preach through books of the Bible at FFC. So we are not afraid to devote an entire Sunday to a passage like this. How many of you read through this passage already in prep for today did, did you that's that's a lot did, did you wonder what is Kyle gonna say from this I was asking the same question Friday it seems like the text is just listing building materials what might a text like this have for us well it might surprise you but we have a work application an evangelistic application a hermeneutical application a busy application, an extravagance application, a redemptive historical application, and an exciting application. All from this text. I'll drip the applications throughout. There are two movements in our passage. Acquiring the materials, chapter 5. Building the temple, chapter 6. Acquiring the materials, chapter 5. Building the temple, chapter 6. Let's look at verse 1. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David. Hiram forged a friendship with David through David's wars with the Philistines. When he receives word that David died, he sends representatives to Solomon. You know, flowers and I'm sorry for your lost sympathy card and let's keep the partnership going between the two kingdoms. This was standard protocol for diplomatic relations. Hiram, a long-term ally of David, wants Solomon to know the handshake agreement with his father still stands for the son. The previous pact between the two monarchs still stands even though one of those monarchs is gone. This is international diplomacy. Making friends with the king next door. The king 140 miles away. Verse 2. 
And Solomon sent word to Hiram. Said, said, thank you for the flowers and the card. That's not the Hebrew, but that's implied. Solomon sent word to Hiram. You know that David, my father, could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God. Because the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. At David's death, his only unfulfilled desire was to build a house for the Lord. He didn't like the fact that he lived in a house of cedar and God lived in a tent. It's a shame. A king living in better accommodations than his God. It was David's heart to build the temple. God told him, you will not build a house for me, but your son will. David's ambition didn't coincide with the will of God. David couldn't build the temple, but he could prepare for it. And that he did. He saved up 3,750 tons of gold. Solomon will have to secure building materials, but he can check a lot of gold off that list. Solomon continues in verse 4. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Solomon is reigning over God's kingdom in a time of prosperity. This is one of the few times Israel was at peace with their neighbors. A rare opportunity where they could actually complete a building project. Domestic projects cannot be undertaken during wartime. All resources go to the war. But now, peace all around. No one, no one is at odds with us, no adversaries, no threats from the outside. Verse 5. So I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, Your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. It's now time for... God to have a dwelling place among his people. God's presence rested in a portable structure. Solomon wants his presence in a permanent residence. The tabernacle, the tent, had been used for 400 years. It's time to fold it up. You ever gotten 400 years out of a tent? Solomon will break ground and fulfill David's dream and God's command. He will build a sanctuary worthy of the Lord himself. From the tabernacle to the temple. A permanent temple in Jerusalem where Israel could gather for worship. King Solomon continues his message to King Hiram in verse 6. Now therefore command that cedars of Lebanon be cut for me. And my servants will join your servants and I will pay you for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Solomon goes about sourcing building materials. He's seeking a, a trade treaty. He knows the Lebanese city of, of Sidon has the very best materials cut by the finest craftsmen. Their major import is timber. Uh, it was quite a commodity and they were famous for it. Solomon proposes... You get your lumberjacks with their plaid shirts and long beards and brown suspenders to provide me with some of their world-famous lumber. My loggers will work alongside yours. I'll pay your men whatever ways you set. My boys can be your gophers. 
They will go for this and go for that. They will make your time productive. You provide the skilled craftsmen and I'll provide some grunt labor. You bring the logs, the timber, the trees native to your area because there is no lumber in the world like that lumber. The size and durability are unmatched. It's simply perfect for our construction. Verse 7. As soon as Hiram heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who has given to David a wise son to be over this great people. A pagan king using the personal name of the Israelite God, Yahweh. That's interesting. I don't think he's a Christian yet, but he's acknowledging the wisdom of God. He's using, using the distinctive name Yahweh. Verse 8, And Hiram sent to Solomon saying, I have heard the message that you have sent to me. I am ready to do all you desire in the matter of cedar and cypress timber. My servant shall bring it down to the sea from Lebanon, and I will make it into rafts and go by sea to the place you direct, and I will have them broken up there, and you shall receive it, and you shall meet my wishes by providing food for my household. King Solomon let King Hiram know what he wanted. Now King Hiram will let Solomon, King Solomon know what he wants. This is, there is a treaty negotiation going on. Proposals and counterproposals. Solomon said, I will pay your man whatever wage you set. Hiram comes back. You live in the land flowing with milk and honey. Don't pay me money. Pay me Chick-fil-A. And, <laughs> and Solomon agreed. Hiram said, don't worry about sending your men to our lumber yard or our forest. We will drop the logs off for you at the port. Now, we would discover later Solomon did not agree to this term. He made Hiram adjust. King Solomon is the king with the leverage in this situation. A cooperative venture is suggested. I give you lumber, you give me food. Solomon is engaging in international trade agreements. Hiram controlled much of the commercialism. Solomon controlled much of the trade routes. Both men desired to make their nation wealthy without further military conquest. Both were eager to maintain a mutually beneficial relationship. Goods coming into Egypt, excuse me, goods coming into Israel, goods leaving Israel, it's a win-win for both parties. Both have their wish granted, an amicable agreement is reached. Hiram begins building rafts. He ties them together and begins floating logs down the Mediterranean coast to the site convenient for Solomon. Shipping timbers by log rafts. Solomon would then transport the logs over land to the building site, maybe 35 miles away as the crow flies. Verse 10. So Hiram supplied Solomon with all the timber of cedar and cypress that he desired. While Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil, that's 120 gallons of pure olive oil, Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. This is an ongoing contract year after year until the project is completed. The terms are renewed each year and agreed upon again. Food for the royal household instead of wages. Verse 12. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. 
And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. International relations flowing flawlessly. They established peaceful conditions, a happy arrangement sealed by a treaty. Verse 13, King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. Sourcing materials. Now sourcing a workforce. Sourcing materials, now sourcing a workforce. The terms are met. The moving of materials is already underway. Notice the use of Israel's labor force. Tens of thousands of men contributed to this effort. When we were building this building, I came out some days and there would be one guy here. I kid you not. One guy. This big building and one guy working on it. That never happened with Solomon's building project. He was a much better GC than I was. Then again, he did draft forced labor. He conscripted laborers. Solomon drafted his own people into slavery. This was not permitted. When Israel first asked for a king, God told them, this will happen. The nation of former slaves now conscripting their own citizens. Some commentators distinguish between forced labor and slave labor. There is a difference, I understand. These were not slave labor camps but it is still compulsory labor. Either way, I think they were forced to break the Sabbath rest. He's forcing people to compromise in order to accomplish something for God. Some contest Solomon only enslaved the Canaanites, but a close comparison of related texts reveals he enslaved both his people and the Canaanites. Verse 14. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home, Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon dispatched his workforce in shifts. I'll send this fleet of workers for one month, then bring them home for two. I'll send this division and then that division. I'll alternate who is deployed. Adoniram is essentially the secretary of labor, the, the labor program's administrator. He sends them in shifts of 10K at a time. The remaining 20K not deployed worked the land at home and went to their own beds every night. Working on foreign ground for one month and working on home ground for two months. Charles Spurgeon went to town on this verse and spoke about how important it is to take special care how you spend your two months at home. Use that for your family and for your local church. I love the application. I'm not sure it's a legit application from this text, but that never bothered Spurgeon. Verse 15, Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. In addition to those 30,000 workers, Solomon had another 150,000. Now, 70K of those were like human 18-wheelers. They transported the logs from the water port to the building site. And these are not small trees either. They are like sequoia trees. Solomon put his unskilled workers here. The great army of workers indicates the scale of the enterprise. It was huge. According to the next verse, you also had 3,300 men holding clipboards. They were overseeing the work. They were in charge of the production lines, making sure the product looks nice. 
150,000 people supervised by 3,300 foremen. One officer for every 35 workers. Verse 17. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon, so Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gabal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. Historians tell us that some of these stones weighed 80 tons. No wonder they needed 80,000 stone cutters up in the hills. These were high-grade foundation stones. Which leads me to a work application. The way you work your job can bring glory to God just like the way Solomon worked this job brought glory to God. The way you work your job can bring glory to God just like the way Solomon worked this job brought glory to God. Solomon wanted his work to bring glory to God. That's why he oversaw it with such meticulous detail. You will see as we progress, he wanted the carpentry, the finished work, to be superb. He demanded quality craftsmanship. It had to bear the keenest inspection. He followed the architectural designs to the T. The measurements had to be exact. Shoddy workmanship would not be tolerated. There are numbers of hasty builders who settle for poor workmanship, poor products, poor attention to detail, but let it not be found among Christians. The temple was not built by the lowest bidder. The cheapest subcontractor was never considered. Only the best craftsmanship. I'm always struck by the fact that Justin Martyr, a second century church leader in Galilee, made an interesting statement that farming families were still using the plows Jesus had crafted 75 years later. What a model for work ethic. What distinction in a world wrapped up in a quick deal and shoddy workmanship. Will my work in this project bring glory to God? Don't ever disconnect your Monday through Friday from your labor for Christ. When you do it well, you do it as unto the Lord. Solomon will give an account of his days on this construction site. And you will give an account of your days on that construction site. Or that cubicle. Or in that financial firm. Or in that mechanic's shop. Work your job for the glory of God. Now... An evangelistic application. When you collaborate with non-Christians in projects, tell them about Christ. When you collaborate with non-Christians in projects, tell them about Christ. You are building a house. You're going to encounter some non-Christians. Evangelize them. You, you are going to be tempted to be so fixated on completing that task, you'll be tempted to forget the gospel. Don't forget about Hiram. Solomon is collaborating with non-Jehovah followers. His collaboration led to evangelism. Solomon spoke of God to this pagan. Some have said it was wrong for Solomon to partner with non-Israelites in building the temple. I don't think it was wrong to enter into agreements with Egypt or Tyre for lumber, just not for wives. 
There were non-Jehovah followers involved in laying the wood floors and carving of the stones. Hey, wait, Solomon didn't use all Jehovah followers? No, you reach Hiram's through trading with them. Well, Kyle, I, I, don't, I don't use non-Christians for my stuff. Only Christian plumbers, Christian foresters, Christian dentists, Christian produced bricks. I don't want pagans to make my bricks. Solomon didn't have that mindset. First and second Kings covers the same material as first and second Chronicles. Much like Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover the same material, the same events from different perspective. In a parallel account in Second Chronicles, we hear Solomon witnessing to King Hiram. He says, and I quote, Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, dedicating it to him, to burn fragrant incense before him, and to offer burnt offerings morning and evening, on Sabbaths and on new moons and on the appointed feast of the Lord our God, this being required forever in Israel. The house which I'm about to build will be great. Far greater is our God than all the gods. But who is able to build a house for him? For the heavens and the highest heavens cannot contain him. So who am I that I should build a house for him except to burn incense before him? End quote. He talks about making sacrifices for sin. He's talking to Hiram about the need for sin to be forgiven, paid for, atoned. It was Diedrich Bonhoeffer who said, your life as a Christian should make non-believers question their unbelief in God. That's exactly what's happening to Hiram. Who are the Hirams in your life? You work with them. They supply you with materials. You supply them with materials. You collaborate with one another. The invitation to collaborate may lead to Hiram tasting more than Israel's food. Maybe, possibly, tasting Israel's gospel. Now, I failed in this, witnessing to those I trade with. May God help us in the stress of business and building that we keep evangelizing. We keep our testimonies clean before the pagan Hirams. May they see our trading as distinctive. A hermeneutical application. That's a lot of words there. A hermeneutical application. Whether you are in the pro-capital building campaign crowd or the anti-building campaign crowd, this text doesn't supply you with evidence for your stance. Now I'm going to unpack that. Whether you are in the pro-capital building campaign crowd or the anti-building campaign crowd, this text doesn't supply you with evidence for your stance. The, the ancients went to seed on allegorizing these chapters. They said the stone cutters symbolize angels sent by God to help us in our battles. Just crazy stuff. First Kings provided an abundance of opportunities for allegorical interpretation back then. Today, it provides an abundance of opportunities for weak application. More heresy is preached in application than in interpretation. There are many ways to apply a text, but that doesn't mean you can apply it however you want. 
When I teach the Bible, I'm never simply just teaching you. I'm teaching you how to teach. Teaching you how to interpret properly and how to apply properly. There is a uniqueness to Solomon's enterprise. This building was intimately tied to Yahweh's purposes for Israel's well-being. This was going to be the headquarters for worship. You can't go to the text and say, this is the first church capital building campaign. Solomon built, now let us rise up and build our new auditorium. Was that the author's intent? Did the author intend for you to use this text to encourage your people to build a church building? Of course not. Recognize when a pastor uses a text for his agenda. Now, for the other half, for the home church crowd, those who are always trying to get less structure and more organic, let's get back to Acts, let's meet in people's homes. Nowhere do you see a church building in the New Testament. Well, that's just completely false. You can't demonize buildings. Homes were used because the crowds were so small. Once they got bigger, they went to estates, homes that were huge in that day. Then buildings designated for worship. Don't demonize buildings. Well, Kyle, buildings aren't the church. The people are. Well, congratulations. You have graduated from kindergarten Sunday school class. We all know this. This building is the sheep shed, not the church. But you can't deny God used physical buildings to accomplish his spiritual purposes. To the home church crowd, I always say this. You don't have a church if you don't have membership. If you don't have qualified elders. If you don't have preaching, systematic preaching. Not talking about just talking in a circle. I'm talking about preaching of God's word. If you don't have those things, I don't know what you're a part of, but it's not a New Testament church. There is not a person here among us who has a house big enough to host all of us. Not even for a cookout. Let's be thankful that God can use physical structures for his spiritual purposes. Acquiring the materials, chapter 5. Building the temple, chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1 reads... In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, church, notice how the author frames this construction project. Normally, if you're laying out blueprints, you don't start with the history lesson. But that's exactly what he does. He says there are 480 years between the Exodus and the laying of the temple's foundation. Why mention this? Because this is, a, this is a continuation of the story of redemption. Another major point along the unfolding drama. There is an ongoing history for the true people of God. Why connect these two events? The Exodus from Egypt and the temple construction in Jerusalem. Because Israel wasn't just freed from slavery. They weren't just let go. They were not just redeemed and then God left them to their own devices. No, they were freed from slavery 
and led into worship. Their freedom from slavery led them to worship. And a permanent structure is more proof that God led his people to a land. They are no longer wandering. Building the temple. Verses 2 through 10, that's the temple exterior. Verses 14 through 38, that is the temple interior. The temple exterior, then the temple interior. The temple exterior, this is where Solomon will dry it in. Meaning no longer can water penetrate the inside. It's, it's dried in. Verse 2. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long. 20 cubits wide. And 30 cubits high. Now, we are given a guided tour of the outside of the house. The building has the same proportions as the tabernacle. Only two times the size. It's, it's the tab, but twice as large and more elaborate, ornate, and costly. 90 feet long, 300 feet wide, 45 feet high. This is a fairly small structure by today's standards. It would be the size of a church sanctuary that seated maybe 200 people, but much narrower and much taller. It would go up four stories high. Verse 3, the vestibule... In front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. Now, there you go. Biblical proof, you can call the lobby the vestibule. <laughs> Churches in the 1980s are rejoicing everywhere. Uh, this was some type of porch added to the front of the temple. It added another 30 feet to the length. Verse 4. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. Solomon actually builds more structure outside of the temple itself. He, he built a three-story storage room on each side. I'm presuming these chambers served as storage places. They could have been for the priests to use, more space to support the ministry of the temple. There were no windows in the tabernacle, but there are windows in the temple. Verse 7, when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. A really unique thing about this construction site was that there were no sounds from hammers, chisels, or other iron tools. Iron banging would violate the holy structure. They cut the stones in another place, shaped them with whatever loud process they used, then transported them to the site when the stones arrived, they fit perfectly, almost noiselessly together. This is highly technical work. Cutting, dressing, shaping stones off-site. No further shaping was needed once they, they arrived on-site. The relative silence of the house building enhanced the sense of order and dignity. Now you will notice 
I skipped three verses in our subpoints. The temple exterior, verses 2 through 10. The temple interior, verses 14 through 38. I didn't include verse 11, 12, or 13 because they are an interruption in the house building. That's God stopping construction. Look at verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. And he said, concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statues and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. <laughs> Thrown into the architectural description is verse 11 through 13, a divine interruption. God says, stop the house building. He's interrupting Solomon's work to make sure he knows it's never about the work. It's always about him. God says, as for the temple, then he doesn't mention the temple. He addresses a far more critical matter, which leads us to a busy application. Or better, an application for the busy. In all your busyness, and all your planning and all your labor for the Lord, he doesn't want you to forget why you are laboring. And all your busyness and all your planning and all your labor for the Lord, God doesn't want you to forget why you are laboring. Beloved, God wants to make sure you don't lose sight of him in your labor for him. Don't get your worth from the work. God was after Solomon's heart, not his hands. I don't just want you to build things for me. I want you. And all the external work, do not forget about your internal work. What is in your heart is more important than what you do with your hands. Verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. That's the outside, the exterior. It's dried in. Time to move inside. Let's look at the finishings and the ornamentation of the temple. They begin in verse 15. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them on the inside with wood. And he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. What did he choose for the flooring? Cypress. What about the wall color? Cedar planks. Cedar makes beautiful wood. Verse 18. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. Notice the gourds and open flowers. Now jump to verse 29 for a moment. Verse 29. Around the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and outer rooms. Gourds, palm trees, open flowers. The, the verses we are skipping, we will come back and deal with them. I just want you to see what is happening. I want you to see all the flower designs. Verse 32. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. 
Now, now look at verse 35. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. Carvings all over the walls. It's not just flat gold. It's not just flat wood. There are gourds and flowers and fruits and angels carved into all of these different surfaces. Floral decorations. Blooming flowers. Lush vegetation. What other place in scripture has all this? Well, that leads us to a redemptive historical application. Why decorate the temple and carved trees, blooming flowers, and botanicals? Why decorate the temple and carved trees, blooming flowers, and botanicals? Wouldn't it just be best to put real flowers in the temple? Why not have real plants in God's house? Why carved plants? And, and why cut down trees to carve trees into the wood? Solomon had no problem cutting down trees and using it for a house. This temple, when you walked in, was like a well-watered garden, but a carved one, engraved in wood, a wooden garden. Walking into it, you would, you would almost expect a, a toucan, a, a toucan to, to come flying over your head. It's a lush, lavish jungle feel, except the jungle is carved in wood. What's the purpose in all of this? This was meant to be what Adam and Eve lost. This was God's Eden restoration project. It's like you're walking back into the Garden of Eden. Echoes of Eden smack your face. Trees and fruits and flowers. It's an architectural recapitulation of the Garden of Eden. Edenic themes on the walls, botanical designs. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. When they left the garden, they didn't lose just nicer flowers. They lost the presence of God. Now, God's people can regain the presence of God through the temple. He's undoing Eden by creating a new Eden. This building project is expressing God's determination to meet with his people again. The temple was a means, not an end. It was to point them forward. God is saying, my plan to meet with you in the garden is still on track. He's going to make a new garden. Now, if you looked at the Bible in landscapes, this is what you would find. The Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 through 3. The Desert of Sin, Genesis 4 through Malachi. Jesus coming to a desert in order to bring you to a garden, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then finally, remaking the Garden of Eden, the book of Revelation. The Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 through 3. The Desert of Sin, Genesis 4 through Malachi. Jesus coming to a desert in order to bring you to a garden, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then finally remaking the Garden of Eden, the book of Revelation. All throughout God's people being in the desert of sin, he sends road signs like this one, the temple, to remind them that his garden plan is still on track. 
The Bible goes from garden to garden. In between a desert of sin. With hints about the garden. As it turns out, the prototype for the temple was the garden. Sadly, that's not where this description ends. Kevin DeYoung points out that the last thing to be described once we make our way out of the golden gardens are the doors, the barriers to entry. The Israelites could not enter Eden still. They missed out on the beauty, they missed out on the flowers, they missed out on the botanicals, but more importantly, they missed out on the presence of God. For most people, access to Solomon's virtual garden was still blocked. Only the priest could enter the building. The average Israelite never went in. They were never allowed in. No wonder we, we are given so much on the interior. That's why we have so much information about the interior of the building than the exterior of the building. Nine verses describing the exterior, 25 verses describing the interior. They would never see the inside, so they were given an audio tour. Something to help them envisage what it was like. They, they couldn't even look through the keyhole. Only the priests could enter. The Israelites were still barred from the garden. Do you remember in Genesis how Adam and Eve were barred from the garden? What stood at the entrance of the garden? Two cherubim. Two gigantic angels. What guards this wooden garden? Verse 23. In the inner sanctuary he made two cherubim of olive wood. Each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits, the length of the other wing of the cherub. It was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. Two cherubim. These powerful angels with huge, majestic wings keep guard. They are guardians of the royal presence. They, they were at the Garden of Eden, and they're now at the temple garden. Royal guardians to intimidate would-be intruders. Each angelic figure was 15 feet tall and their wingspan was of equal or greater length. They are carved from hard olive wood and plated with gold. This whole temple replicates the garden. Adam and Eve were banned and expelled in a direction, east. So they had to come from the east to try to gain entry into the garden. You know how the temple was set up? West to east. You come from the east from being exiled, expelled, to attempt to gain entrance into the garden, the Israelites under Solomon's rule would meet the same two cherubim that Adam and Eve would meet. Verse 20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged in the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. What you might think of in a movie where they open a treasure chest and the whole room is illuminated, 
That's what happened here. Everything is solid gold. Glittering, shining, everything is gold-plated, gilded, and inlaid with gold. Gold used in copious quantities. Verse 30. The floor of the house he overlaid with gold in the inner and outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorpost were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. The doors decorated with the same carved figures as the walls, all overlaid with gold. What vast expenditures of funds this must have required. This is a highly ornamental building. Gold everywhere. Walls, ceiling, floor, altar, gold chains hung on gold rings. In the next chapter, gold door hinges. Which leads me to a cynical application. For those who moan about what needless extravagance, nothing is too extravagant for the Lord. Nothing too expensive. For those who moan about what needless extravagance, nothing is too extravagant for the Lord, nothing too expensive. Can't you hear the groans of needless extravagance coming from the people? What is this building costing our economy? Can't you line the floor with something other than gold? Let's get nickel-plated hinges instead of gold. Can't we source local, local timber? Why this Lebanese cedar? Why such an expensive commodity? The grandeur of this building is a little much. Is this a waste? We, we are gold-plating areas where no one will ever see. One man will see it one time a year. Can't we cut some corners here, Solomon? Friend, the extravagance for the temple was completely appropriate. No expense is spared, and for good reason. Why should the Lord's house look like it is built on a budget? It reminds me of Mark 14, where a woman poured the most expensive perfume over Jesus' feet, and they asked her, why this waste? Same question. Why this waste on the temple? So much more could have been done with it. But she recognized nothing was too extravagant for the Lord. Nothing too expensive. If you, if you were in charge of building the temple, what would it have been lined with? Only the best is good enough for God. Don't reserve the best for yourself. We would rather keep the gold for ourselves. Give ourselves the gold and give him the wood, hay, and stubble. Give us the best, give him the leftover. Lavish the excess on ourselves, not the Lord. Kingdom building has a high price tag. Alan Redpath quipped, Before you can pray, Lord, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to pray, Lord, my kingdom go. The golden splendor of Solomon's temple was meant to reflect the priceless splendor of God. Will you, will you place your eyes on verse 38? 
in the, and in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. Over the course of seven years, Solomon constructed the temple down to the last minute detail. Just as the architectural plans showed. It's done. The house is finished. And my, my, what beauty. We will look at move-in day next week, but let's just behold the grandeur now. This temple was made to make you marvel at the grandeur of God. Let the people marvel. A Christological application. A temple destroyed. This is the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. This is the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. This beautiful building stood for four centuries. But in 586 BC, the Babylonians looted and destroyed it. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego looked at the temple and marveled at the grandeur of God before the temple was brought down. And they were taken to Babylon as captives. It would not be the only time a temple would be looted, broken down, and destroyed. This same temple will be rebuilt years later after the return from Babylonian exile. We call that the second temple. And then that temple will be destroyed in AD 70. The Romans will do the job for that one. That temple was the temple that Jesus walked in. They, they call the first one Solomon's temple. They call the second one Herod's temple. Solomon's temple took seven years to build. Herod's temple, it took 46 years to build. Jesus stood near this temple and he said, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. They didn't get it. He said later, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. What? They said. It took 46 years to build. See, they missed it. They thought Jesus was talking about the second temple. He wasn't, nor was he talking about the first temple. He was talking about the third temple, the temple of his body. Just as the first two temples were looted, broken down, and destroyed, so was the third. They looted Jesus' body. They beat him to a pulp. They destroyed him on a cross. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't come in a Superman body that couldn't be nailed to a tree? I did. See, the body was meant to be destroyed, to be killed. The third temple was meant to be demolished. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ came to be the true temple of God. In him all the fullness of God dwelled. He was the presence of God living among us, tabernacling among us, templing among us. Jesus' temple was looted and destroyed. It wasn't the Babylonians or the Romans. It was you. Your sin nailed him to the cross. Your sin effectively looted the temple body of Jesus. Your sin kicked down the walls. Your sin was the wrecking ball that brought it down. All your sins are sins against his temple body. Oh, and, and by the way, Jesus kept his word. They did destroy the temple of his body, and in three days he did raise it from the rubble. 
Solomon's temple wasn't permanent. Herod's temple wasn't permanent. Jesus' temple was permanent. It's still standing today at the right hand of God the Father. Non-Christians, you must repent of your temple destruction and run to Christ, the true temple of God. No fierce cherubim keep you out. The door is open. Run to Christ and be saved. One final application. It's an exciting one. God is still in the temple building business. God is still in the temple building business. Now, beloved, I'm not seeking to confuse you. But there is another temple. Another place where the presence of God dwells in complete fullness. It's the fourth temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? <laughs> I love the Emmanuel principle found throughout the Bible. I will dwell with you. That's what all this tabernacle and temple business is about. God came down in specific ways and specific locales and dwelt with his people. I, I will save you, then I will settle you in the land. When I have settled you, I will settle with you. God is working on a new construction project. It's another temple constructed with even more surprising materials, not cedar or gold, but flesh and blood. It's, it's the most extraordinary edifice anyone has ever constructed. Now, Solomon is a good builder, but I have more confidence in this building. We are a part of the most exciting building project in the history of the world, the church. Eric Alexander said the most significant thing about, the most significant thing happening in history is that God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. I'm going to read that again because that's so good. And I wish I said it. But I didn't. But I'm going to read it to you. Eric Alexander said, The most significant thing happening in history is that God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. God, you create ex nihilo out of nothing. We build with borrowed stuff. You build with created stuff. Father, you are building your church. You are making something beautiful out of us. Quarry us using suffering and your word. Chip away everything that doesn't look like Christ. Fit us perfectly together to form your church. Use pain and promises, suffering and scripture to shape us. Sanctify and chisel your church. Build us for your glory. Amen.